0: Trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, where taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. When I created the Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Task Force at George Mason University in July of 2020, it was to ensure that Mason remains a national leader in creating an inclusive and excellent campus environment in which every member of our community is valued, supported, and experienced a sense of belonging. That is why I was so gratified last month when Mason hosted the inaugural Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Conference that provided a forum for higher education, industry, and government, nonprofit, and other change makers to A, share best practices and resources to advance anti-racism and inclusive excellence, and B, amplify the visibility and impact of research and creative activities conducted by national scholars. The keynote speaker was Gail Christopher, executive director of the Collaborative for Health Equity and a senior scholar in Mason Center for the Advancement of Well-Being. Dr. Christopher, who we actually interviewed here a little more than a year ago, chairs the board of the Trust for America's Health. In her new book, Rx or Prescription Racial Healing is a guide to the tools and resources needed to teach racial healing in colleges, groups, institutions, and communities. Dr. Christopher, welcome back to the show.
1: Dr. Washington, it's my pleasure and honor to be back and to share this conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Before we get getting started with this actual meeting, you had some great stuff, so I couldn't wait to jump right in. But I am curious, what are your main takeaways from the conference?
1: i was so impressed with the levels of excellence and demonstrated commitment on the part of the researchers from the various institutions of higher education you know you brought people together from across the country i was also impressed that there were so many leaders of color african-american immigrant people who really bring a heartfelt commitment to their work and they were sharing their lived experience within academia to achieve the goals that you've set forth. And so from library science to supporting postgraduate students to curriculum reform, there was so much that was there. And it was clear that there was a community of belonging. I mean, you accomplished exactly what you set out to do. And I was so impressed with the leadership team that pulled it together.
0: Oh, they did a fantastic job, without question. There was a lot of talk at the conference. From your interaction with attendees, how do you hope that talk will be put into action on the ground?
1: You know, it was clear to me that these young people, they are doing the work. And I think what they need most is to be affirmed, And to feel that they're part of a national movement, that they're not out there on their own. And so I left that conference feeling like this was what these students and these leaders and these faculty and graduate students, that they really were plugging in to ways to stay the course. Now, institutions reflect the racial hierarchy of our society. And so they were candid about the obstacles and the barriers that they faced within their institutions. But I really felt like they were leaving there with more confidence that they could actually continue to do this work within their institutions and they could network and connect with one another and be supported by one another. And I think that that's going to enable them to maintain the work when they, those that are within George Mason and, and those that are going back to other institutions.
0: Well, that is great to hear. As you know, Mason established the Center for Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation on campus. That is a collaborative with the Association of American Colleges and Universities. At the time, there weren't that many, but now there are more than 57 or so such entities in the country, and you're a big part of that. One of the points that I wanted to make relative to that entity and the conference is that Mason, the goal was for us to deal with issues of diversity and inclusive excellence from the perspective of research. Oftentimes, we have to deal with these issues from the perspective of grassroots efforts like protest, from the perspective of dealing with a Eurocentric culture and model. And the people are coming out against that from the perspective of dealing with a difficult political environment. But we wanted to have research be the core part of this. How do you think you best balance the academic pursuit of research with the grassroots actions on the ground?
1: I was so impressed with the speakers who talked about the research that they are doing that involves community-based participatory research. So in addition to the research that they're doing within the institution, they're actually engaging the community so that there is this authentic voice, this authentic lived experience, but it's being amplified and it's being codified and it's being reinforced and validated with the tools that the academic research community has to offer. So I I was impressed with those stories that were being shared on your panel And I'm so pleased that your focus is research, because part of what we have the opportunity to do is to define the research agenda, to define the research agenda within a context of our efforts toward justice and equity. For example, we've had decades of describing health disparities and health inequities. People have made it an industry to stand up at conferences and talk about the gaps. But that doesn't really move us forward. We now have the breakthrough, I know our organization has what we call an opportunity uh, frame for our data around health. And we're not just focusing on what's missing, we're focusing on quantifying what needs to be achieved in order to achieve health equity. So if I'm a local leader of a jurisdiction, I can look at this data and say, if I create affordable housing for 750,000 more people in my jurisdiction, I am contributing to health equity and that's measurable. So I do believe that this is the perfect time to bring 21st century skills and tools and information technology and artificial intelligence to our agenda for justice and equity. And I think it's very possible to do it. And, and I heard stories about it from your speakers at the conference.
0: You know, the generation coming behind us is one of the most diverse, actually it is the most diverse this country has ever seen. They're gonna inherit a country And they're going to have to know how to engage and deal with an environment full of different opinions, beliefs, outlooks from groups who see the world very, very differently. With that as a backdrop, can you talk about how you address issues and how critical is it to address issues of implicit bias in systems and structures? And, And where does higher ed fit into that endeavor?
1: Well, that is a soft question in the sense that it's a perfect lead into the rationale for why we partnered with the Association of American Colleges and Universities. We were real clear that It is on the campuses, all the different types of campuses that the future is being molded and shaped, the future leaders, the future teachers, the future social workers, child welfare workers, physicians, engineers, you know what I'm saying? This is our workforce and it's being developed on the campuses. And so to engage young people in the perspectives that they need, the truth, racial healing and transformation is grounded in a framework that is comprehensive that recognizes that the stories we tell are not necessarily the stories that reflect us as a whole. They reflect the biases that are structured. The relationships that we have are built on the fallacy of racial hierarchy. So we live in segregated, separated dynamics in our communities. And then we've embedded this into our structures. So you've got this five-part framework that enables people to open their eyes and see, well, wait a minute, I can change this or I can change that. There was one speaker on at your conference who was a librarian and I believe he was from Harvard. And he talked about how just the books, the choices that are made in terms of the literature that's housed on the campus, he talked about the inherent bias in the selections, the inherent biases in the systems, right? Uh, He talked about how it was the black community that really moved the self-publishing industry forward and how that evolved to really help to integrate the selections of resources. And so I think that the academic institutions are absolutely essential for shifting the cultural ethos into one that is no longer racist and that demonstrates the excellence that will emerge from the inclusion of those voices that have been excluded. I really do see Mason and your leadership there as helping to point the way. We hope to have at least 150 universities involved within the next few years, but clearly the academic world has a major role to play.
0: You actually have a new book. I guess it's Prescription Racial Healing, right? Or Rx Racial Healing, A Guide to Embracing Our Humanity. While the book explains the tools that can be used to teach racial healing, it is framed by your own personal narrative and understanding of the power of racism and the need for healing. I want you to talk about the book, but then I want you to, as the racial healing doctor, I'm going to ask you for some prescriptions for George Mason University. So why was this book so personal for you other than the fact that you wrote it?
1: That's a really good question. As you know, this work has been my life's work. And like so many other people who have lost loved ones, due to racism, explicitly due to racism. We cope with that horrific loss by channeling our energies into trying to do something about it because part of the work of racial healing is opening up and sharing our stories. So I wanted to convey my journey, sort of the origin story of this work in a way that sort of models that it is okay to open up and share the truth of our lived experience. So that's part of the personal aspect of it. And truthfully, we as human beings are neural networks, you know, our synapses, all of that works together best in response to the human story. We can put the data out there, you know, we can have the facts, we can organize it But if we want people to lean in and really listen and hear and retain what we're offering, it's occasioned by the invitation into the human story. And so I wanted to model that in the book. And I'm really pleased with the numbers of leaders there on your campus who've gone through a few-day training experiences, who have the book, and I understand that they are doing these racial healing circles on the campus, and they've taken ownership for it for the, at the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being mm-hmm. and other places on the campus, and that's exactly what we need to see happen. And, you know, I offer the training and the support for facilitators, and they're always co-facilitated circles, but I've learned that there's no way in my lifetime I could ever train enough people or offer enough workshops. And that was one reason for writing the book. We really wanted to keep the work growing exponentially and spreading because our democracy's viability is very much dependent upon us developing the capacity to see ourselves in one another and to just let go of this absurd fallacy of a hierarchy of human value.
0: So... This is where I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the challenges we continue to have here at George Mason. I guess the best way to put it is George Mason University is named after a slave owner. And as the president, the very first question that news media outlets asked me when I started the job was... Was they going to change the name? And we had a big debate about it. And where it came down for me was a couple of things. Number one, I looked at the country at that time. And at that time, 12 of the first 18 U.S. presidents owned enslaved individuals. OK, 41 of the 56 signatories of the Declaration of Independence actually owned enslaved individuals. And 25 of the 55 men who wrote the U.S. Constitution did the same, right? Slavery was a part of the economic engine of the country at that time. And for me, the reality is that the name George Mason gave us the ability to really explore the duality of America, right? Which has at its basis, freedom, liberty, and justice for all, even though And enslaved and segregated millions of its own people for a significant portion of its history. George Mason embodied that duality. And so uh, how do you jettison the name without jettisoning the country? That duality is synonymous with America. And my philosophy is we should be exploring that and using that as a part of the healing process. And so you talk about that healing first and foremost begins with truth. But then you talk about it expands to reimagining. Can you talk about that a little bit in the context of George Mason University?
1: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the honesty and the forthright framing of the facts. And this is what our nation has failed to do. We are in a state of denial, and we have been since our inception. We denied the humanity of Africans and indigenous people And we denied the brutality. I always say to folks who use this term white supremacy, I say, if you knew the truth of the brutality and the barbaric dynamics of centuries of enslavement, you could not associate the word supremacy or superior with that. In fact, it is depravity. And so I, for one, think we need to get rid of that term because it's such an embodiment of the lie. That said, I agree with you 100% that our challenge is to face the paradox, to put it mildly, to face the contradictions, you know, and to unpack that. What is it? that allowed that. What is it that allowed the aspirational expressions of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as an endowed and an inalienable right? And then the denial of that to millions of human beings. And this is where we get to the heart of what I believe is the work, which is to acknowledge it as a belief system. We talk a lot about memes today in our society. The original meme of America was racism and racial hierarchy and we have to face that and we have to understand that we cannot achieve the aspirations of our democracy without dealing with that set of contradictions and dealing with it structurally acknowledging how our society was built on it how our economy was built on it how our legal system was built on it and how our ability to live freely our residencies were built on that fallacy so i really think george mason can play an important role in acknowledging that and many of the other institutions you know in virginia who all all were i believe founded by people who owned slaves we need to just unpack that and say yes that was then and we were ignorant you know we can't really figure out what we know until we acknowledge our ignorance. And that phase of America's evolution was a phase of absolute depravity and ignorance. And that needs to be acknowledged so that we can move forward together as a country. So, you know, I could go on for days in response to that, but I think the the honesty about it and you all will come together and figure out the solutions. The Audubon Society recently at least in the D.C. area, changed its name. It was a gnashing of the teeth and it was a going back and forth. But they finally landed and said, you know, we really can't be about nature and life and respecting holistically and continue to have a name that embodies the antithesis of what we say we're about. So they chose to change their name. That may happen in the future for George Mason, but only if it's a community embraced and supported process. The name is less important than what it represents, which is what I think you were just saying. And it does present a unique opportunity to bring your community together with grace to actually unpack that sordid history and what it means. Now, in the truth, racial healing and transformation work, I have always said we have to begin by believing that it's possible to create something different. And that's why the first step in our process is to imagine a future in which we have succeeded in doing the work. So we ask the question, what will this campus be like when this work has been accomplished? What will the new narrative of this institution be, right? And where are we now in relationship to that future, to that new narrative? Because that helps us to figure out What do we need to do to get there? Who needs to be part of the process? Who isn't at the table? Who has the power to make this happen? And ultimately, what are the steps we need to take right now to hold ourselves accountable for progress? And then what are the next steps that we need that that will help us to get there? But I think this work, the true work of transforming our nation and our institutions, it's got to begin with the imagination, with believing, and seeing
0: a new future. Um, I want to see if we can put a little bit of meat on the bones. Okay. So let's reimagine for a minute. We have very few visions of what this thing could be. Mm -hmm. I contend to you. Very few visions, right? You have the Martin Luther King framework, right, as he stands on the mountaintop and he looks off and he sees all of these individuals of different colors and different groups working and engaging together, right? And people see that as a mechanism of colorblindness in society. I don't think that's what Martin Luther King was talking about at all. By definition, he saw color, but he saw them working together and engage together towards an outcome that everyone was benefiting from and benefiting from in some egalitarian based framework. What would that reimagined world look like in your view?
1: I really love the question. You know, we could put a cherry on top of that question because Dr. King and Coretta Scott King, his brilliant wife, they used the term the beloved community, which they took from their theology background. And I appreciate the reference to colorblindness because that has been a trope of the 20th century, and it really is not part of this work. We must see who we are, see who we've been, see what we've done as part of the healing so that we can see what we could do, what the potential is that's not being realized because we're not providing equal opportunity to all, equal opportunity for education, equal opportunity to live healthy lives. And so when we talk about envisioning a future, we really are talking about creating the systems of equity, the systems of fairness that invite and create opportunities for everyone to actualize their human potential. I recently finished a book called Waging a Good War, And it is written by a wartime journalist who decided to go back and revisit the civil rights movement within the context of it was a strategic effort that involved many of the principles that in waging a good war. So there was training, there was support, there were campaigns campaigns that were successful, campaigns that failed, but it was very well executed as a strategy. In the everyday mindset of people, they think of Dr. King as having a dream, and this book does such a beautiful job of saying Dr. King had a strategy, and all those people that worked with Mm -hmm. him executed that strategy. And so this vision of a new future, it's built on strategy. What do we do to change the way we live? Our housing system is driven by a real estate market that has no interest in equity or fairness. So how do we pass the laws and the legislation and the policy that gives us a true access to housing principle in this country, which we don't have, right? Our legal system is designed to maintain the status quo, to maintain the hierarchy, and to exploit the vulnerable, primarily people of color. So that system has to be changed. It was built in slavery, the slave patrols, you know? And so we really have to redesign that system. And certainly our economy is based on this unjust hierarchy, so when I talk about a vision for the future, I'm including in that a clear set of strategies, campaigns, and actions of which reparations is one potentially in the economic frame, but it isn't colorblindness, it isn't idealism, it's real work. We did part of it in the 20th century, but we need to bring 21st century tools now. We need to leverage 21st century artificial intelligence, information technology, because we're in an information war as a democracy. You know, there are those who hate democracy, who want authoritarian government, and they have engineered an information war using today's social media to divide and to destabilize us. And the fault line that they are leveraging is our racism. So, I want to switch
0: gears a little bit. Then I want to come back to a couple of other things that you've highlighted. So, we just recently had this election and I contend that the country is not necessarily torn apart by economic issues, even though, look, we're dealing with record inflation. We've got some significant financial challenges with the supply chain and other issues. You would think that that would be the driver to everything. Inflation is as high as it's been probably in the last 40, 50 years. I think you have to go all the way back to the seventies. You would have expected to see a very different outcome in this election, right? You know, midterm elections are referendums on the way in which the state of the country and the economy primarily is going. And people have said that they are really struggling with the economy in general. I still continue that there. Lots of people have jobs, and yes, it costs you more money to do things, but this has been one of the best job markets probably in the last 15 to 20 years, but it didn't turn. You didn't see the level of change that you see at a midterm election. Even if the prognosticators that are highlighting what will happen over the next few weeks as they finish counting votes, even if all of those swung Republican, it's just not as much of a red wave that people were talking about. I'm interested as a person who looks at these issues, why? Of all the possible times for there to be a red wave, this is time. But it didn't happen. So, can you
1: talk a little bit about it? I am happy to talk about it, and it gives me a great deal of optimism. I really do believe that the we call it a Supreme Court, but I call it an extreme court. The extreme court went too far in reversing Roe v. Wade. And this group of men and and women who are confused said to the majority of Americans who don't believe what they believe, said to them, no, we have control. We're taking control over your rights, your human rights, your rights to control your body. And I think that It revealed the possibility, the very real palpable possibility of reversing decades of progress toward actualizing our human rights and our civil rights. And I think that mobilized people to come out of their tendency to sit out a midterm election. I also think that The extreme and, you know, some people criticized the decision that some of the Democratic strategists made to actually support these extreme candidates that were recommended by Trump to support them during the primaries so that in the main elections, it would be the Democrats going against these extreme Trump supported candidates. And some people felt like, well, that's a bad move. But it proved to be wise because the majority of Americans see this extremism, see this Trumpism for what it is. They see the lie of this notion about we won the election, you know, I mean, it's a refrain and it's a orchestrated campaign, but most people are not buying it. Most people see beyond it. So I think it was the combination of the mobilization of those who care about a woman's right to have control over her body. And the majority who see the absurdity of still arbitrating the 2020 election, that Former president is a defeated president. And so I think if you put those together, America's saying, no, we're not going to sacrifice our democracy on the altar of one man's ego, nor are we as women going to let males determine fully our rights to control our reproductive health. And so I think the combination of the two. And I also think this administration delivered despite the resistance, despite the barriers. We had infrastructure spending, the likes of which the 20th century, or at least the second half of the 20th century has never seen, and certainly the 21st century to date has never seen. We had forgiveness of student loans, which was a grassroots movement by students. I mean, and of course, they're fighting it tooth and nail, but I believe it will prevail. We had, for the first time, some movement on gun control, not enough, but some movement on gun control after the horrific killings. And I could go on and list so many things that this administration managed to accomplish. They didn't manage to message it as strongly as they should. But I think all of those things combine to bode well for the future of our democracy with a little d. And not just the Democratic Party, but our democracy as, as a whole.
0: You've said that creating data diversity at community health centers can improve equitable access to care and expose obstacles to access. Can you talk a little bit about what this data diversity is
1: and why it's so important? You know, I'll give a quick story, a quick example. There's a project, I believe it's called the Healing Arc up at, in Boston, at a major hospital up there, I believe it's Brigham and Women's, where these doctors realized that the disparity in deaths from cardiac problems was a wide gap between people of color and between whites. And so they took the time to examine the records and to recognize that the physicians on call, when a person of color presented with cardiac symptoms, they went to the regular admittance part of the hospital. When a white person presented with cardiac symptoms, they immediately were rushed to the cardiac unit. You know, now sit with that for a minute. Why would you send a person with cardiac symptoms other than to the cardiac unit? So that they unpacked that and they realized that it had to do with insurance coverage, it had to do with, frankly, bias and all those things that are at play in our medical system. But they used artificial intelligence, they put in place a computer assisted program so that when a doctor put in those symptoms, it would trigger the right decision in terms of admitting them to the cardiac unit and they were able to make an immediate shift in the disparity and the inequity and in the treatment outcomes so that's just one illustration of how we can use real-time data in the clinical settings and we can disaggregate that data and we can use it to help us to change our behaviors and ultimately it's about decision making there was a study that came out in 2021 i believe where they compared what they call physician-patient concordance, and they looked at birth outcomes. You know, we have this persistent infant mortality challenge, right? And they looked at birth outcomes, and they compared the outcomes for babies that were brought into the world by physicians that were the same color. And they found that the Black doctor was the attending physician for a black baby, that the infant mortality, the infant death rate was reduced in half when the race of the doctor was the same as the race of the baby. Now, you know, when we get into all this cultural competence, we say it's about relationships, it's about communication. What are these newborns communicating to these doctors? It's more than communication. It's what's going on in the mind and the heart of the practicing physician in terms of his deeply embedded inability to value that life. And I want you to know that that study, which was published in peer-reviewed journals, that study also included very complicated births. So it boils back to the decisions that the physicians are making based on how well they relate to and connect with this baby, based to a large measure on on race. So that's what I mean. We have to disaggregate the data. We have to track our behavior. We have to put in place computerized systems and human systems to check our own behaviors and our own decisions.
0: So how does the Black Progress Index, which was developed by the NAACP and the Brookings Institution, play into this construct?
1: You know, it's a wonderful tool, and we have several of them in addition to that one. This one focuses in on the Black community exclusively, and that's one reason I love it. It reframes the narrative to one of expectation for progress. We've done that with our HOPE data index. It's time to start saying, you should do this. And if you do that, we know it's going to get us to a point of movement forward and progress.
0: Yeah, As you talk about issues of health and life expectancy, that progress index really starts to hone in on factors here in Virginia that I think are useful. For example, in Fairfax, Virginia, where Mason's campus is located, life expectancy for black residents is 83 years, right? That's among the highest in uh, U.S. counties. In Jefferson County, Ohio, which is a county I am also familiar with, it's 63. Mm -hmm. These progress indices and mechanisms, I think, if deployed properly, can be very, very helpful in helping us figure out the reasons Mm -hmm. uh, why groups in some areas are doing better than groups in others.
1: I agree with you 100%. And the movement to use data and compare geographic data by county by jurisdiction that work began about 20 years ago and we were seeing 20-year differences in life expectancy within the same community on the metro in dc you could start at one end of the metro and and travel through a community and you'd see a 20-year life expectancy dropped before you went to the other end and it just illustrates the reality of segregation and disinvestment in particular communities based on our racism in this society. These life expectancy outcomes, this data and the gaps, it gives us a narrative that says this matters. It costs lives. And lives, if we're driven by economic perspectives, the lack of investment, how many black men who only live to be 62, 63, how many of them have paid into the social security system, but do not benefit from it, right? So there's so many implications of this reduced lifespan and life expectancy based on race. It hasn't improved enough, over the last 20 years. And that's why the data is important, but the data without the implementation of strategies, multiple strategies, comprehensive frameworks, the data is just gonna be another way for us to keep telling ourselves the same thing over time. And so that's why over the decades, you know, my work evolved to say, okay, yep, this is the problem, but what are we doing about it? And how are we mobilizing to fix it? And quite honestly, this administration has done more to center equity in its work than any prior presidential administration. It's
0: interesting cuz that information isn't getting out. I don't think people recognize that or or hear about it at all.
1: I agree with you and you know even in the Obama administration the problem was messaging. And I don't know why they don't do a better job of that. Now part of it is, you know, I, I may sound like the extreme right, but part of it is mainstream media they tend to want to tell the bad news story, right? They tend to want to play to the divisions and the polarizations and the uh, the emotions. And they're not willing to tell the truth, to tell the good news that's happening. But every federal agency, every single one of them, Dr. Washington, has produced an equity plan and an equity strategy. That's never happened before. This is the most diverse cabinet in the history of any presidential administration. I've been in meetings and conversations with them, and it's mind-boggling in terms of the sincerity and the intention to really be held accountable and to put in, in place systems of accountability. So you are absolutely right, and you know, those of us who have any kind of platform, we have to do all that we can to amplify the good news. Well, that is indeed good news.
0: As we conclude here, talk to me about the role of the individual in all of this. Right. You've been talking about systems and frameworks and organizations and governments. Right. What about the role of the individual in all this? Where does that apply?
1: We saw a good illustration of that in terms of the election. And that's the beauty, I believe, of our democratic system. Individuals do get to go in and make decisions and have a voice. I do believe that in a society like ours, it's the individuals that have, look at who's running the major corporations, right? People like yourself who are head of institutions, parents. And that's why the racial healing work is focused on the individual within the context of the systemic work that we have to do. But each of us can make decisions every single day that are either moving us forward toward a more progressive, just and fair society or not, right? The individual, ultimately, that's where it starts. And ultimately, that's where it ends in terms of making choices and decisions that are designed to embody or reflect a commitment to equity and fairness, whether it's our decisions as parents our decisions as teachers and educators or the stories I told about the decisions that doctors and nurses are making, but not just, those who are providing those who are receiving i mean we can decide that we're, we're going to vote with our feet and we're going to leave an institution or you know a service provider or someone who is not respecting our dignity and our humanity we get to do that we get to vote online if something is wrong with an institution so i think we're at a time where more than ever before in our history the individual has a voice and that voice can be amplified and shared. We just have to do it with a level of maturity and grace, I think.
0: Well, look, (laughs) you know, I almost don't even have a response to that. You you know, (laughs) this has been been so enlightening and interesting. And so I want to thank you for bearing with us through some of the technical difficulties we've had. But most of all, I want to thank you for your work in this area, both the present work and for the great things I know you're going to do in the future.
1: It's my honor and pleasure to be in the podcast with you again. Thank you for the invitation. And and I really do applaud your leadership and the work that's happening at George Mason. It is the right work. It really is palpably right in terms of what I experienced at your conference and what I've experienced in interacting with your faculty, staff and your community.
0: Well, I want to thank you. And again, I look forward to the great things that I know are coming forward. Well, that'll do it for this edition of Access to Excellence. I want to say thank you again to my guest, Gail Christopher, the Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity and a Senior Scholar in George Mason University Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington Sane, Until next time, stay safe. Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.